Well, good evening. Um, my name is Orville Shell, and I'm the director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations uh, here at the Asia Society. And I want to welcome you all here and, and welcome our, our guests as well uh, for this Voices of uh, Burma evening. Uh, this evening is co-sponsored by the Asia Society, the Magnum Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, and the uh, whole uh, uh, Voices uh, of Witness, which is a series of, of books, a uh, very interesting series that I came into when Dave Eggers, a uh, writer from San Francisco, was teaching at Berkeley and did a book on uh, people in America who were unjustly accused and incarcerated. And they've also done a book on refugees from Sudan, victims of the Katrina uh, hurricane, and now, uh, most recently, and you'll hear some of the voices tonight, uh, voices from Burma. It's a kind of a very odd thing uh, for me, who has been working on China for so many years and accustomed to having these bookends at either side of China. On the one hand, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and on the other hand, Burma. And since 1962, Burma seemed like it couldn't change, wouldn't change. There were very few things that were sort of almost eternal, uh, and Burma and North Korea seemed as changeless as one could get in this very rapidly changing world of ours. And now we find uh, the place in a state of incredibly enticing and exciting and uncertain flux. We have no idea where it's going. But already we see uh, the National Democratic League is out and about. Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate, is out and about and talking to the new president. There were elections. There's discussions of rele releasing prisoners, uh, something which certainly won't happen to the North in North Korea. So we find all of these incredibly hopeful signs, but it's very early and it's hard to know exactly where they're all going to go. Whatever happens... I think it's important uh, for all of us to remember that the backdrop of the last decades since the early 60s uh, has been one that's been very difficult for Burmese. And it is from these decades, this backdrop, that you are going to hear voices uh, tonight. So I want to welcome you all here. I hope we'll all learn something tonight and look forward to hearing our, our readers uh, read from Voices of Burma. Thanks. And they kept me there for two nights. Then they blindfolded me and took me to the interrogation center. 
put me in a room, took my blindfold off. Um, the room was small, about six feet wide, and the walls were solid except for one window. And through it, I could see the police women changing guard every hour. During my interrogation, I was asked who had donated money, their names, addresses, how I contacted these people, who I went through, and what my connection to them was. They asked me about the intention of the donations uh, that my colleagues and I had been delivering. They asked me if I had a relationship with the exile media groups. That was the main question they asked. See, the government sees everything from a political point of view, so they suspected donors, international and local, of being their enemies. They're always suspicious. And the police were watching the local donors to see who they were affiliated with and what their political intentions were. The interrogators were from my country, from my people, the interrogators are not criminals, not monsters even. I think there are two kinds of people who do these things. Some are participating because they are ordered to do so, and some just misunderstand what they're doing. But these people are bad for the country. Towards the end of the interrogation, they told me, if you say anything about the interrogation, you will be charged. So I signed a paper that promised I wouldn't tell anyone. And after that, they sent me to insane prison. But I wasn't afraid. I'd made up my mind before any of this happened. As a journalist, I knew I could face arrest. The trial began two weeks after my arrest, but they didn't sentence me until five months later. A 505B charge, which meant you had disgraced the state or you had intentions to destroy the state. That's what they charged me with. When my trial finished, my friends and family told me that people internationally were trying to help our cause. My friends supported me, but they felt very sad for me, and my parents were also very sad. After seven months in prison, I was moved to solitary confinement because I'd asked for prisoners' rights. My sentence was for two years, but I was released after a little more than one prison director came to my room and told me I was going to be released. I was on a list of prisoners who would be granted amnesty. I didn't expect to be on this list, but it was 9 a.m. when she told me, and I was released at 11. I rested at home for one month, and then I began my journalism work again. As a journalist, I want freedom for our media this country needs journalists even more than an open and democratic country does. If our country were a democracy, I might leave. But for now, this country needs more, more journalists. 
We have to speak up to the international community about our current situation so that the next generation of political prisoners will see improvement in their conditions. You know, one day when I was a child, I was playing with some fruit. Now, my mom had never let me eat this fruit before because she was worried that I would choke on all these little seeds. But I accidentally broke the fruit open and I saw it was ripe. And so I tasted it. And it was so sweet. The situation in Burma is like that. The people don't even know what the fruit is. But when they start to learn and become concerned about our issues, then they'll start to understand how sweet the fruit can be. I'd like to tell you the story of how I joined the Army as a child. I was nine years old. It was a school holiday on the full moon day in November, and we were making a picnic. At around 8 p.m., one of my friends and I went out to buy some chicken. At that moment, an Army truck came and took us. When they pulled us into the back of the truck... I found there were six or seven soldiers inside. They made us lie down on the floor, and when I tried to shout, they covered my mouth with their hands. They said, you keep quiet. You have to come with us. My friends and I were very afraid, but we didn't say anything to each other. I'd heard from my parents that soldiers beat and arrested people in my village. I'd also heard that soldiers shot people in the street. So I was afraid that they might kill me. When the truck stopped, we got out and I saw the army base. My friend and I had been brought to a Burmese army battalion in Rangoon Division. My friend and I were brought to separate cells. They were like prison cells and they chained the doors shut. I had no chance to talk to my friend. The battalion compound was big. There were many soldiers living there, but I don't know how many. After two or three days, I was asked to carry water. On a normal day, I had to get up before 6 a.m. and work during the day. My friend and I were very lonely while living at the Army base. After working all day, finishing dinner and washing the dishes, we were locked up in the rooms again. During those times, I missed my home very much. I cried for my mother and my family. I was the youngest of five, and I would play with my brothers and sisters and 
go to school with them. My parents really loved me, and they always made me happy. When I cried, I was beaten by the cooks and the sergeants. While they were beating me, they would say, Why are you crying? Stop your crying. I lived like this for about two months inside the Rangoon army base. I didn't know what was going to happen to me next. I was arrested during my very first job as a journalist. It was in June 2008, soon after the cyclone Nargis, and I was a political prisoner for over one year, and I just was released three months ago. My parents and relatives didn't want me to be a journalist. They thought it would be too tough of a job in Burma, but they couldn't stop me. It was my ambition. The 2007 Saffron Revolution was another one of my main motivations for becoming a journalist. And while it was happening, many young people, including me, we were searching the Internet for information. During that time, all Burmese citizens became journalists. So in 2008... When I began my career, one of my friends introduced me to the editor of a weekly publication. I didn't know anything about journalism. And the editor had to teach me how to chase news tips and how to interview. I had only been a journalist for three months when that storm hit. Two or three days after the storm passed, I heard more news about the damage in the Irrawaddy Delta, and although my colleagues and I wanted to share the story of Nargis with the outside world, at that time we were more interested in just helping people rather than reporting. And we were helping with the donation efforts to support people in the Delta, and we traveled to the area together. It's not far from Rangoon, but it took two or three hours to get there because transportation was so poor and the routes were damaged. One time when we were in the Irrawaddy Division distributing donations, the police questioned my colleagues seven times. And each time the police asked where they came from, their names, what they were donating, food, clothing... My colleagues had to give the names and addresses of the donors, and after that happened to them, they didn't go back to the Delta. At that time, I was busy taking care of victims in the Rangoon area, and I would go to the office and turn in my photos and information, and after that, I would go back to the village to prepare dinner for the cyclone victims. Sometimes dinner was good, sometimes it wasn't. I mean, it depended on the donations we received. Although the death toll in Rangoon was not as high as in the Delta, the food crisis there was really bad. Four weeks after Nargis, the government declared that there were no victims in the city of Rangoon. 
And after the government made that declaration, the local authorities came to the small Buddhist temple where I had been volunteering, and they evicted all the refugees who had taken shelter there. The government didn't want victims gathering in the area, so they made them leave by force. In June, I tried to help the cyclone victims get international attention, and a plainclothes officer saw what I was doing and yelled, Who are you? And he searched me and the victims and abused us verbally, and I got very angry. Why are you saying these things to the victims? I yelled at him. And so he arrested me, and they brought me to the police station. At first I was angry, and later I began to worry, especially for my mother. I knew my parents would be so worried. But then I began thinking about what would happen to me, and I decided I would just face whatever was ahead. After about two months at the Army base, I was sent to a recruitment center. When I first arrived, I found almost 70 children there who were around my age. At the recruitment center, I got to stay with many other children, and I had time to play. The adults there indulged us and never made us study or read books. We were free to move around the recruitment center however we wanted, but we were not allowed to leave. The compound was guarded by lots of adult soldiers. I spent two years like this in the recruitment center. When I was grown up, about 13 or 14 years old, I was sent to a training center for four and a half months in Patane in Irrawaddy Division. At the training center, we had to train in the heat under the bright sun and even in the rain. They asked me to run with a gun, and I was punished if I failed. My trainer would come and kick me with his shoe and then make me stare directly into the sun for an hour. Every morning, we had to declare our loyalty to the Army. By the time I'd completed training, I started to believe in the Army. I was granted a uniform, a gun, and my private rank ID number. I was a soldier. My friend and I were separated after we completed training. I don't know where he was sent. I was around 14 years old when I was ordered to go to the front line. My officer came and told me, you have to go and fight the guerrillas in Karen State. During my training, and then at our battalion meetings, the leaders always preached how cruel the rebels were. So at the time, I believed the guerrillas were trying to take my country and kill my people. While we were on the front line, our officers ordered us to completely destroy the local people. They told us that even the children had to be killed if we saw them. I saw soldiers abducting young girls, dragging them from their houses and raping them. At the time, I felt that those girls were like my sisters. Sometimes the officers would find one of their soldiers who they didn't like or who was very frightened, and the officer would order the soldier to do that kind of thing, like rape the local women. 
If the soldiers didn't follow orders, they were shot or beaten. We couldn't refuse their orders. We had to follow them. I was in Buti Dung when the Safran Revolution started. My commanding officer said everyone must be ready. We were told that if the monks or student protests grew, and if they were fighting against the authorities, then we needed to fight back. We were about 70 soldiers. We were equipped with sticks, slingshots, and guns. Our teachers told us that it didn't matter if it was monks or students. They were marching together, and we had to shoot at them both. I was in the streets in Sedway for three days monitoring the protesters. But we didn't do anything to the monks and students because they were protesting peacefully. At first, I thought that the monks and students were just rioting. But later, I learned that they were protesting because of the people's hardship and suffering. They were demanding that the government do something to solve this problem the people were facing. I realized it was similar to the situation in our battalion because soldiers are poor and only get a small salary. Since that moment, I stopped believing in the army. I really respect the monks, and I couldn't do this to them. So I decided to flee. I decided I would rather be killed than stay and attack the monks. One friend and I discussed how we were gaining nothing by working as soldiers, and we decided to run away from our battalion together. We tried to escape many times, but failed. One day that October, my friend and I packed up all of our things to try escaping again. At five in the evening, we left the dormitory and came across one of our battalion's commanders. He was suspicious of us and ordered us to follow him. When we got to the door of his dormitory, he asked, Are you trying to run away? We denied his accusation. He beat us, but we didn't tell him anything. He told us we would be sent for at 7 p.m. and we would be kept in a cell. Then, while he was speaking, he turned to go inside the dormitory. At that moment, we left our bags and ran away. While we were running... We didn't talk about anything except our route. We just said, turn right here and left there. We slept for a night at a monastery. It took us five days to reach the border to Bangladesh. I started to learn about Aung San Suu Kyi when I arrived in Bangladesh. I was like an animal while growing up in the military. I did everything that I was told and in turn I received food they provided. Here, I have the freedom to learn. In 2009, I participated in a protest to demand freedom for Aung San Suu Kyi and to gain democracy in the 2010 elections. If a lot of people inside Burma and also the UN support Aung San Suu Kyi, then we will get democracy and human rights. Only then will I be able to go back to Burma and have the chance to see my family again?